0: Chapter Eleven of Man and Nature on the Broads by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. November in Broadland. By my caller Heron, ye little ken their worth. Well, by my caller Heron, oh ye may call them vulgar fairen wives and mithers ma'est a car them lives o' men by lady nan a cold damp drizzle generally ushers in the dreariest of the broadler months november it is the month of fogs and mists and driving sleets deform the day jim trett the fenman's opinion would be that no embers neither here nor there nor one thing north the t'other, a kind o of dead and a live affair the last remnants of the sare and withered leaves are stripped from the branches of the woodland trees and they lie a natural matting to protect the tender shoots of a future generation of wild plants which love to spread their flowers in the glade and on the hedge-bank flora is not dead but taking needful repose intervals of pleasant weather occasionally brighten the face of nature and the sunlight flings the shadows of the trees distinctly upon the land and we are tempted forth to lengthy rambles such a morning finds us in the train which fusses along through broadland there is scarcely a breath of wind and the rays of the morning sun are dazzling after days of storm and mist and gloom ah bore, volunteers a son of old ocean who has made himself comfortable in his rough and ready fashion in the same compartment of ourselves and between whose knees dangles a string of silvery herrings this here's only a wather breeder you will just see if i ain't far out from bein right goodness knows we've had a tidy spell o bad wather this month Law, how that blowed the early part o last week after having delivered himself of this comment he relapses a while into silence some unpleasant reminiscences mayhap are passing before his mental vision we refrain from unduly intruding upon his cogitations and peering out from the carriage window we catch a glimpse of the sea now placidly rippling and gleaming as if in its summer play as gentle as a child great gulls mostly greys the immature of the greater saddlebacks amongst which may be distinguished a few of their blacker-backed elders and several herring gulls and their smaller relatives the larus ridibundus are winnowing their way on easy pinions to and fro playfully dipping to the surface of the water to snatch up fragments of herrings and other animal refuse as their keen eyes espy them Over the nearer Marum-covered sandhills, several white-winged snow-buntings are hunting for seeds of the various dune plants that flourished there in the warmer days. In flight, they are exceedingly conspicuous, and the grey-mantled hooded crow, recently arrived from the Norwegian fiords, loafs here and there, ready to pounce upon wounded fowl or any carrion that less fowl-eating creatures have passed carelessly by we might perhaps have noticed the various changes in the country through which we are being rapidly borne along but our brawny-shouldered guernsey-clad fisher friend who has distributed one or two characteristic expectorations upon the floor and replenished his capacious cheeks with a fresh section of twist, becomes talkative, and monopolizes our attentions. Nothing loth, we settle to a friendly gossip, and let him spin his yarn. You are right, boar. We have had some rummy weather, and only this time last week I never reckoned on comin' home to my old gal again and man i have followed the sea off and on this twenty year but i ain't had sich a nearin afore i don't like to see a sight and i don't know any one as do if they say they do they lie there bore that's straight anyhow i main them as go a fishin and smackin on the north sea it'll do middlin in summer but it cuts up rough in winter and little or much it's rough pretty generally us broadland folk, many on us you know het to eke out a livin partly ashore and partly afloat Lads foller it up altogether spendin a few odd days ashore between times i go a heron catchin and spend the rest of the year ashore a farm labourin', A fisherman's life bore is a hardin and it ain't the weak as can stand it them as kin don't look any the wuss but a sight the better arter leaving the plow-tail a while and on the summit better livin', for the briny piles up your appetite as well grow fat and kedgy or sprightly i were a sayin' it blowed well the wind were fair and things looked promisin' when the old tug-gleaner chucked off the tow-rope of the sea-mew and we stood out to sea we was making for the fishing-grounds some miles to the northeastern the sun went down in an ugly sky but we didn't think as how things had changed for the wuss so quickly We'd hardly got the nets shot and got turned in when the wind began to freshen. The skipper didn't like the manner on it, and his glass went back most curiously. He gan the order to haul em in. Now, tain't no easy job to haul in a mile and a quarter a hair of heron nets, stowin the bowls or floats and sich like, specially when you're doin it in a hurry it were well we did it Kedgey, for it blowed most awful by the time we'd done it and got hove to under storm canvas you'd be surprised how soon the north sea turns up choppy we didn't feel particular uneasy as the good vessel dipped her bows and then rid over the taran seas now she clomb climbed the white-fringed mountains and now she fell from their tops into the yawn and gulf below it were more awful than grand plunging along in the black night two on us kept watch the night was fearful long thinks i a basin of hot tea ud do my innards good half drownded with the spray as flung itself aboard and stung and blinded with the hail I shouts into my mate's ear and tells him so, and went down. I'd hardly got below when we heard a terrific row on deck. A sea broke over the vessel enough to bust her in two, and we heard a shriek. It were poor Dick Stevens's last cry. In a moment he must have been carried overboard and been drownded. I can hear that screech now. Poor Dick, he were a decent feller. Right into the mainsail the water poured, heaving the sea seamoo down onto her beam ends and snapping the boom like a piece of stick. We thought it was all up with us, now poor. The foresheet were carried away and the sail flapped madly in the wind. Somehow, God only knows how, she righted but the water had rushed down the hatchway and half-filled her. Did we feel scared? Well, if I say we didn't, it'd be a lie. But we didn't feel like giving it up while the vessel hung together. We should have looked to rum crew if yelled a us some half-dressed, hatless and bootless, just as we turned in. With our work cut out, I can tell ye, cutting the boom clear for fear it'd knock a hole in us and clearing away the mainsail we rigged up a jib and soon brought her head to wind some got to the pumps and right glad we was to hear them shout there she sucks for how could she face the heavy seas with her hold more than half full of water Tired and jaded, some on us went below again, steadyin' ourselves as best we could as the vessel plunged and lurched, some on us prayin' to him whose only son settled the gale on the sea of Galilee, and axin him to bless the wives and little uns as was worrying at home for dad a tossin' on the ocean. The hard horny hand brushes away a tear from the good fellow's weather-beaten cheek a awful crash on deck again made us hurry up the companionway, and a terrible sight met our eyes many a ton of water had struck us the vessel were pretty well clean swept boat and everything gone barin the mast and the rag of a sail and some of the bulwarks forward was knocked clean away well for old billy harden as he'd lashed hisself to the tiller or he'd a gone with em as it wore, he broke a rib or two and we had to carry him below i took the tiller prayin' god to help me to do it while some hurried to set another jib we kept burning flares but law who could help us everyone else had enough to do to look after theirselves. And then, good heavens, a wuss crash followed. We'd been run into by another craft as we were in wuss' plight and ourselves. It were the affair of a moment when a young feller, God only knows how he managed it, jumped clean off her into ours. Before we could get on our feet again, for we were all knocked down by the collision, we'd lost sight of her. She must a sank directly. The poor chap said as she were the perseverance trawler, waterlogged, and in a sinkin' state. All hands had been swept overboard except him and the mate who'd steered for us. Poor feller the mate had gone down with her. We were now in wusser state than ever, for with a big hole stove in the bows as let in any amount of water and it were only by keepin' the pumps a-goin', we floated. Fortunately, the storm lulled a bit, and we ran afore the wind till we sighted Caister. Burnin' flares agin', we soon had the lifeboat arter us, and them brave Caister men, God bless em took us off, puttin' as many as their own men aboard as could be spared, and standin' by her, reachin' Yarmouth Harbour with us, with the wust o the gale over and the daylight a breakin Easter, yow know now what mischief were done and how many a brave feller never sailed into port again. By the time our friend's yarn is ended, we have drawn up at the Broadland Station, and as our road lies in the self same direction. We continued to chat in a friendly sort of way until we reached his cottage, standing in a well-kept little garden. Evidently he had been expected home for a trio of merry youngsters flinging wide open the somewhat rickety gate ran to meet him, clustering round him as only loving children would, and smothering his bronze face with kisses dad's home brings out the good man's wife who meets and welcomes him as one of the wives and mithers ma'er's despairing only could what a marked difference there is in the outlook on the broads to-day the yachtsman has entirely deserted them and but for one or two boats containing couples of enthusiastic pike fishers we should have the solitudes to ourselves it is cold work at its best sitting or standing hour after hour throwing your live bait into likely spots where esox lucius may be lurking one need possess an abnormally strong constitution and will beside to follow it up successfully one angler yonder has a big fellow in hand how the maddened creature flurries and dashes in its terror eagerness and many another emotion are indexed on that flushed face as the fisherman gives and takes hopes that he may prove victorious in the struggle fears that the big fish will have his own way in the end and that look of triumph as he adroitly gaffs the tired-out monster is the most marked feature of them all and it is with justifiable pride he contemplates his huge quarry now lying at his feet and blesses the stout stubborn tackle and his right good luck which proved more than a match for the shark of our broadland waters a slight breeze ruffles the face of the cold-looking waters and rustles through the rush and reedy broad margins fluttering the dry leaves and rattling the equally dry stems into strange rustling music the reeds have not so much altered in general appearance yet as in colour a few of the lanceolate leaves have dropped and the feathery head tufts have assumed the woolliness that tells of a full age and a speedy dissolution on yonder tuft a couple of small brown birds are busily feeding the juvenile mollusks which in the sunny days crawled up their stems for a short siesta have gone below and the handsome bearded tits for such are they must perforce be thankful for a vegetarian dietary and so they are taking their fill of reed seeds they are merry creatures lively and musical even in winter making the reed bed ring with their clear flute-like ping ping unfortunately for the reed pheasant as the norfolkese call him the collector is always eager for a specimen of this indigenous bird of broadland who but for persecution and slaughter would remain with us all the year round if our fenmen should exterminate the native race it will become lost to us for we have no migrants of this species putting in an appearance in winter the time is gone for fifties to be seen together here what a host of birds we miss to-day not a reed warbler swallow marten or white-throat is seen the rattling notes of the common wren hunting in the alders and the chinking song of the redbreast have become familiar and the harsher cries of the berry-feeding Tadido of which the fieldfare and redwing are the most vociferous representatives, are heard on every side where hedgerows trend. There are some wildfowl on the broad. They are apparently napping, for their heads are snugly tucked under wing. Their small size unmistakably decides them to be teal. A crested grebe disporting and fishing nearby disturbs them they rearrange their already tidy plumage then playfully dodging each other for a moment take to wing and make for some other broad the grebes do not appear so plentiful as they have been on the approach of frost when the skaters will make their advent here they will have betaken themselves to the tidal estuaries where food may yet be had what big bird could it be that disturbed by our oar crackling in among the dry reeds now took to wing and with a sharp harsh cry hurried away we recognize in its brown mottled plumage and long thick rough neck that rare east anglian outlaw the common bittern now alas no longer deserving its distinctive title for by the draining of its native reed swamps and marshes to which it resorted in the breeding season they no longer afford it that secrecy and protection which seems so necessary to its perfect happiness jim trett or any of his kindred would have been delighted to have made so close an acquaintance with the bird as we have and to have levelled their fowling pieces at it bottle bump as the fenmen name it usually feeds at night and is extremely loth to take wing by day suspiciously eyeing intruders through the labyrinth of reeds and skulking off noiselessly at their approach we have been fortunate in seeing the fellow in his dull flagging kind of flight there are few small creatures that fly swim or crawl that bottle bump despises when downright hungry the last eggs of the bittern found in broadland were taken in the sixties we catch of course an occasional glimpse of coots and moorhens and pay scant heed to them, or the snipe which frequently pass squeaking overhead. Some tufted ducks, a couple of interesting shovelers, and a red-throated diver, seeking a change of diet of young roach, severally engage our attention. We push the boat up into a little sluice, at the end of which a kind of dam has been banked up, a rather large ditch on the other side is kept within bounds by a quaint skeleton-like drainage pump mill that throws its superfluous water into the broad we step ashore on the boggy soil and scramble up to take a closer inspection of the curious structure its machinery is simple the mill sails when at work whirl round as the winds play on them by a simple crank adjustment the box goes up and down now fast now slow as the rod is affected by the movement of the sails they are revolving but quite slowly now and for want of oil strange rasping and screeching noises emanate from the machinery in the water below it the aquatic plants reflect their broken and dishevelled remnants the sedges are crumpled and drooping not a little red or blue dot of a wild flower is there to relieve the dull monotony of coloration everything is brown and sere the only bright colours are the yellow willow leaves floating upon the surface the slight breeze gradually dies away the mill sails cease revolving stepping into the boat again lunch is brought to daylight and we sit down a while to enjoy it quietude has reassured whatever creatures may have skulked into safe hiding at our approach how unobservedly they vanish a dark brown bird wonderfully like the dead herbage that it skulks amongst glides into notice but for its movements we had not discerned it it is a water-rail its sneaking habits are its safeguard and what fuss or ostentation is necessary when life's duties and necessities simply consist of capturing the snails slugs worms and aquatic plants on which it feeds its summer cry is a very odd croaking which the natives here call charming a crackling in the reeds attracts our attention on the right a huge animal that we at once know to be an otter forces his way through the reedy phalanx and is about to discuss the good qualities of a fine tench upon the very rond we have just stepped off his quick black eyes have caught our slightest movement and like a stone he drops into the water we secure that tench for it's as good for man as otter and the fellow can procure another far easier than we can this savours of appropriativeness poor fellow it's a sorry life he leads at the best for every man's hand is against him nobody has a word to say in his favour the very fish he devours are grudged him as if he were to be blamed for taking the paltry fish for his living why not rather blame those who for the sake of slaughter only haul out hundredweights to lie and rot upon the broadside however while the interminable reed bed exists, so long will the otter, in spite of persecution, at least hold his own. Who can that be standing by the mill pump with an eel pick in his hand and beckoning us? At first we fail to recognise him, but his voice is unmistakable. It's none other than Jim Trett, the fenman. We row back again he has been eel-picking and his inverted bucket with a bottom where the top is usually located with his pick and his old fowling piece with his worthy self are soon aboard with us we have divined his wish to row back home with us and so to save his old legs some mile or two's tramping he has flung a brace of wild ducks and a woodcock in before him but why this alteration in his physiognomy well bore as y'all seem curious about it i may as well tell you the main of it all last tuesday no bore let me be right on it it were the monday i went out with my old ape bore thinkin to get a clip at a bunch of gray lag geese as were scoffin, or eatin the young wheat in a field up hinder to their heart's content. Now, old woman, I says, afore lavin' the house, ye'll have some at worth the bacon for dinner to-morrow, or my name ain't what it are, says she. do not you tell or count your chickens afore ye hatch em. That's where I bait ye, I says, 'cause they're geese and not chickens at all. How's I goes arterem? And by dint of crawling along a hole or dry ditch, among nettles and brambles, wading through sluss or the mire and what not, come up within easy gunshot. Now, Peggy, says I, do your duty. And I claps her to my shoulder and pulls the trigger. Only a click she made. I hent put a patch or cap on. And if you believe me, I fumbled in every pocket and couldn't find one. The geese hains up their heads, a wonderin', but seein' nought to be scared on, went on feedin'. I could a-hold or thrown Peggy in the hole. Howsomever, thinks I, I ha got a match. Here goes. So... Putting my hand jest under the trigger guard to steady her i poured a charge of powder over the nipple so as not to miss going off if possible click went the match up jumped the flock or tried to as they bunched up peggy blazed into em settling how many i didn't know for the powder as were on the gun and spilled in my hand Bust up into my silly old face, burning off every hair as were on it and fairly blinding me. But I got my buds, four on em, as soon as I come any way round at all. Ain't ain't I a lovely critter just now? My old woman were finely scared. I hope I shall get over the moot or molt by springtime. As we row across the broad, A dense fog which we have been anticipating settles over everywhere so that to steer homewards without mishap we skirt the reed bed making a detour much longer than necessary but as in walking in a fog so one may row and row and find oneself an hour hence at the very place started from now and again a gull looms up in the thickness appearing much larger than he really is like a agreeable two that we make closer acquaintance with than usual he shuns our society as soon as he recognizes us as the fog seems likely to last some time we quit the broad and walk homewards with our discursive friend who has much to tell us this afternoon he is expected at farmer Hobbs's with his ferrets rats have become more plentiful than welcome one curious incident happens near the landing stage a moorhen paddling round in search of food has attracted the hungry eyes of a big pike a splash and a whirl and the fish's ugly head appears above water but a moment too late for the bird has taken to wing in the very nick of time on our way towards the village we pass a trio of farm hands watering their horses at the horse pond they have been at the plough we cannot help noticing the contrast in the gait of hodge whose life is entirely spent ashore long used to walking over ploughed and soft land He takes slow and lengthy lopes or strides with his shoulders forward and his awkward arms swinging in pendulum motion at his side. His billycock hat, canvas slop, and fustian breeks tied with pieces of string below the knees complete his orthodox attire. We venture to ask one brawny fellow why these knee cords. Or says he, ye'll follow the plough or work on the land where wet grass and rubbage sod or soak your trousers below. Just yell stoop without em being tied to, and you would bust off every button you'd on em. It gie yer freedom o' movement, bore and law, we don't fail dressed without em. The fisher broadman takes shorter strides, rolls in his walk turns out his heavy elbows and somewhat reverses his hands his well-filled guernsey and heavy but less ungainly boots with the usual billycock completes his undress uniform the barber and he are on friendly terms for a mustache he resolutely refuses to wear he becomes altogether smarter in appearance Manners and lingo, then droning vegetating hodge, but those brawny, rotund shoulders and that portly figure mark the fisherman indelibly. Not that all grow fat, having accepted an invitation to have a cup of tea in our fisher friend's house, we drop in on our homeward way to the village station betimes finding the good man playing all sorts of capers with the youngsters, who at times threaten to swamp him, as he puts it. The appearance of strangers curbs their rough play somewhat, and without being rude exactly, and a long way from being impudent, they stare at us as we enter. And they do stare, to be sure, these Broadland children, although the novelty of yotin and other folk agadwadaking or tripping on the broads is wearing off there is a savoury smell of bloaters not those oak billet smoke delicacies from the fish house but fresh herrings or rather the least bit salted that have hung a day or two in the air to dry and season grilled over a clear wood fire they are exceedingly appetising and we are not long in falling too the homemade bread is in keeping with the herrings which we disintegrate with our fingers the fastidious spoil the flavour by using knife and fork hunches of bread disappear as if by magic all round the youngsters as well as we have prodigious appetites seven herrings disappear from between billy tungate our host's big brown fingers he too has an appetite the tea is black by name and appearance tungate's missus has been broken into boiling it in the old kettle and emptying the leaves only when there's no room to put more in then when full as the fisher-folk do at sea she empties it so he tells us and makes a fresh start from the kettle bottom one broadland cottage is much like another both inside and out there is the same old-time red brick structure tinged with the greens and yellows of age the same honeysuckle or roses trained over the small paned windows and the martin's nest above the doorway. A tiny flower garden runs before it to the palings, with a hedge of holly or privet growing parallel. The walls inside are whitewashed, and a regiment of little cheap prints and family photographs are hung in anything but a methodical way upon them they have been tacked on as they turned up the brick floor is sanded the fireplace bright with lead and elbow grease everything is clean as wax from the youngsters ruddy faces fresh washed for dad to kiss them to the baby's little print dress for dad's home you know the homely repast having come to an end, friend Tungate gets down his long clay pipe, draws from unknown fob depths his sealskin pouch of strong cheap shag, and tempts us to share its contents. The youngsters have each had their hug and kiss, and their mother trots them off to bed, but not to slumber yet for they have some arrears of fun to get over before they fall asleep when not a dean or sound will be heard not even a winnock or cry from the baby our good man grows chatty as the smoke curls upwards we may not place on record scarcely one fraction of his yarn which is of things fishy and of the sea that insurin' of the herons is a wonderful thing, boar. So regular, so enormous, and in course, so welcome. Some say they come to spawn. Perhaps they do. But I have a notion as they come on the hunt for food as well. What do herons eat? Well, they eat wery small shrimps. Possum shrimps, I hear the gents once call em small sea wormen and even a spawn and young of their own sort it's a rare godsend they're comin'. we fishin' chaps muster up some thousand strong and man some four or five hundred boots a fishing boat all found without her nets costs suffin' over a thousand pounds and her nets nearly half as much so it means some thousands of pounds o rollin', don't it? yo know at least I s'pose you do that a heron net's like a wall o meshes, floated atop with corks, kept straight down with its own weight. A single boat drifts out some hundred and fifty nets each thirty yards long, eleven yards deep, some mile and a half that makes it we keep an eye on the gulls and wilducks or guillemots and the gants or gannets where they fish we know they're suffin shootin our nets at nightfall we hauls em early in the mornin it's a rare sight to see us haulin in thousands of silvery critters as have gilled theirselves a shovin to get clear of the nets the more they shove in course, the tighter they get and drown theirselves, they do to be sure. We got over twenty last a couple of nights ago. That's lemme see how many. A last is ten thousand. Reckon thirty-two over for each hundred. That's thirteen thousand two hundred. I reckoned it up this morning at two hundred and sixty-four thousand. They fetched nine pound a last that weren't a bad bit of work. Gales and bad luck play the mischief up with us sometimes. We get paid in proportion to our techs, you know. So much on the last or otherwise by the dole or share. There's leaven on us from skipper to boy. A good season and some may have to take forty or fifty pounds for their share which ain't bad seein as we fish from the end of july to christmas bad luck it is as spiles us when we make up in debt it's a lottery bore it are you've seen the fish wharf ain't you when the fishing's in full swing ain't it a sight to see the fleet of boats put in and out and the full heron swills or baskets spread a whole mile along the quayside, and ain't we a rough unkempt lot in our cells and oilies or oilskins and faces unwashed for a week at a time. Just fancy a little heron ruling the lives of thousands. Merchants, fishermen, tellers or counters, auctioneers, coopers, blacksmiths, Sailmakers, ship carpenters, and a hundred other sort of folks, and thousands on em, all getting more or less benefited by one little fish, but in course, the millions of em do it. You've been in a fish house, I spurs? That's a rum sight seeing the carters fetching the fish, the hands assaultin', washin', spittin', or runnin' em on spits or sticks, hangin kipperin packin labellin and what not ain't it a few hours hangin in the smoke-room makes a heron into a yarmouth bloater and as many weeks as ours make ham curd reds of em and for a breakfast dainty give me one on em though for a matter of that didn't they make me dry i could manage half a dozen <laughs> much that relates to the habits and whims of the herrings their varieties the manoeuvres of the fishermen to outwit them much of the birds and marine monsters that prey upon them of humorous and pathetic incidents that brighten and sadden the fisherman's life is told us until the striking of the old dutch clock in the corner warns us that it is time to be off if we would catch our train a tap at the window brings us out quickly it is none other than our old friend trett who is off to the station with a trunk of eels i thought as you'd be here Bore, and as i've borrowed caleb Hewitt's pony and here's room for you well i don't see as how you'll need to walk we bid tungate good-night Tret puts the gray pony into an easy trot and away we go look here boar says he you've been good to me and the missus do take this here for your dinner to-morrow it'll please your missus and i know it will you i kilt a couple this morning down in the seven acre midder we dine at home next day on a fine fat bean goose and wish, dear reader, you could have dropped in upon us and have had a taste of its sweet, juicy flesh. End of chapter Eleven.